Welcome to episode 81 of The Real Photo Show, sponsored by the School of Visual Arts MFA Photo, Video, and Related Media Program, chaired by Charles Traub. So today's episode comes from a live audience recording that I did at the School of Visual Arts with my guests Oliver Wasso and Mark Alice Durant of St. Lucie Books. And we were there to celebrate the release of Oliver's new book, Friends, Enemies, and Strangers, published by St. Lucie. But before we get to our conversation, I just want to give you a heads up because it was a, a live show. Uh, there'll be moments where maybe Oliver is setting up his laptop to start the slideshow um, and I cut away to Mark. So it might seem like an awkward transition. Uh, also, there'll be some audience Q&A and, and most of the time you can hear the question, but the sometimes the questions get a little garbled, but you'll know what was asked by the response. And then there was just a, a little problem at the beginning of the show where Oliver's mic was cutting out near the ends of his sentences. Uh, I think I mitigated that issue with some editing. <laughs> so uh, uh, other than that, it went great. No, it really, it was a great conversation. And we really touch upon a lot of things. Now, the book, Friends, Enemies, and Strangers, as you can imagine, will be discussed a lot. Um, now, you don't need to be staring at the book while listening to the episode, but it would be helpful if you went to saint-lucy.com, clicked on the book, and looked at some of the photos so you have an idea of what we're talking about when we talk about manipulation and the way the Trump family appears in the book, as well as some of our conversation about colonial photography and the recontextualization of images. You can also purchase a copy while you're there, especially if you have MAGA hat-wearing family members visiting you for the holidays. The conversation will be stimulating. All right, just one last note before we get started. Uh, watch out for new half-frame episodes. These are 15, 20-minute conversations I have uh, over the phone with previous guests of the show uh, where we just catch up with things they might be working on. Uh, the first episode will be with Charles Traub, and he'll be talking about his book, Tara Diddle. And then I hope to do a lot more of those in between the episodes. So I hope you'll like those. Uh, let me know. Uh, leave feedback on iTunes or Google or Stitcher or Spotify or TuneIn, SoundCloud, you know, anywhere you listen to podcasts. All right, everyone. Uh, happy holidays. Enjoy the show. And we will talk soon. Let me just uh, say up front, thank you to the School of Visual Arts, MFA Photo, Video, and Related Media Program, chaired by Charles Traub. And special thanks to Liz Zito, who is uh, always so helpful in scheduling everything I do here. <laughs> and of course, uh, Seth Lambert, who um, is always setting up uh, all my equipment for me. So thank you. So we have Oliver Wasso here and Mark Alice Durant of St. Lucie Books. And we're here to celebrate the release of Friends, Enemies, and Friends, Enemies, and Strangers. Thank you. <laughs> Friends, Enemies, and Strangers. <laughs> this book was a collaboration, really, between you and Mark. St. Lucie, St. Lucie didn't really start out as book publishing. No. St. Lucie is originally uh, an online journal that I started in 2011, um, which has various agendas. But basically, it was meant to have... a to house, archive uh, essays I had written for various publications over the years and monographs, and then to give myself permission to 
uh, write new things that editors of various journals had said no to. Um, <laughs> and also to a uh, big part of St. Lucie, the website, is uh, conversations with artists and curators and critics and um, um, photographers. And so much like your program, was it really a, a way to kind of... And so we were talking about this earlier, about, um, you know, celebrating community, but also sort of deal with our own loneliness <laughs> about, you know, working in isolation sometimes and just wanting to have a co larger conversation with people in depth about their work. And so that was started in 2011, and then 2017 um, made a decision to start publishing books. So we've only been doing it. I say we, it's me, yeah. but um, uh, for two years, and it's been uh, four books so far, and Oliver's is the latest. Right. And so then, how did this project come about? So Mark, who I've known for some time, contacted me. He asked me if I was interested. I'd been working on a series of portraits uh, for some years, and he had seen I'd been working, had also been doing what a, a series of images I called rogues that were mostly meant for the internet. They were posted on the internet. They were pictures of the Trump administration and the various sort of cronies and, and the, the, the <clears throat> hooligans and people in Trump administration. And he had suggested the idea of doing a, a book called Friends and Enemies. And then we tossed that, which I liked very much. I liked the idea of working with Mark. So from our conversation, one of us, I don't remember which one of us came up with the suggestion of including vernacular photographs also, another sort of peripheral interest of mine. It was a, a, an opportunity for me to synthesize those three interests of mine and uh, see what happened when I kind of banged them up against each other. Yeah. Uh, well, can I just say that it didn't seem like a peripheral interest to me. I mean, since um, I was aware of the portraits you were doing of your family and friends and also the rogues gallery once the Trump had won the election in 2016, but your online presence, mostly on Facebook but also on Instagram, um, had a lot to do with these uh, vernacular photographs, largely portraits, pictures of people that you had been collecting and sort of curating and making these sort of curatorial decisions on how to present them online. And that was a big part of creating this community, online community, and getting people to respond to images. And so to me, like the vernacular photographs were already a big part of your practice. So it made sense to bring those in because it wasn't, to me, peripheral. You had crowdsourced some of those images, right? Crowdsourced them? Yeah. You had enlisted people to help you collect imagery? Well, until re very recently, none of the actual uh, images were existed as physical prints. I, I only, um, they were crowdsourced in the sense that they were, the objects themselves were uploaded by other people. Okay. And then I collected them, curated them, which I know is, a, for some people, a problematic word, but I actually <laughs> curated the images all within a kind of social media space. Which, you know, I was interested in the sort of the way that they became active within that space and they were reanimated and given new life. Um, so when I say peripheral, I guess I only mean the first 30 years of my career, such as it is, I had never taken a photograph, never included a person in my work. So it wasn't, I guess it wasn't peripheral as much as it was. It ran parallel too, but the, the two worlds never really intersected. Yeah, and at some point I started thinking about these, the connections and the relationships these images. I mean, again, the, what, what we're calling the rogues, you know, those were done as a project initially just to raise money for Parenthood and the ACLU. They were born of kind of an inability to work in the studio after the election. In fact, I was just 
telling these guys the last time I sat in this chair here was Wednesday morning, do you remember, after the election, two years ago, a little more than two years ago, where Marvin Heiferman and I <laughs> had committed to what we thought would be a celebration. Oh. Uh, and um, <laughs> yeah, and I literally, like I sat here and wept in front of people. And mm-hmm. you say that, you say it was, it was difficult to figure out how you could possibly work, how you yeah. could create work. And, so, yeah. so, so those, they were really born, they were not meant to be necessarily seen in, in, outside of a virtual realm, outside of a social realm. And then I did make prints to, you know, to, to raise money. But when Mark you know, approached me for the, for the book, what the book allowed me to do was to start looking at connections between these bodies of work and to create juxtapositions that, that you know, gave them meanings that, that aren't necessarily their original. Right. And, and recontextualizing these images is a big part of your practice. Yeah. I mean, I think that it's the very nature, certainly, of vernacular imagery that it is, it's authorless. It's often, they're kind of floating around there waiting to have meaning assigned to them. And it, it, it goes to the sort of the, the heart and the, the sort of the problematic nature of portraiture. In its essence, the idea that we can know someone by looking at their portraiture, we, we can make assumptions by looking at a portrait of someone. And uh, we were talking a little earlier, there's, there's a, a whole problematic history of portraiture in general with, with the early colonial photographers and the way they uh, se- sexualized and photographed the other as strange and exotic. And the, the way you um, play with these photos, the way you alter these photos also you know, brings out that, that, that kind of strangeness as well. And, you know, that could be used for, sometimes that could be used for, uh, you know, harm as well. Uh, and so it, when I was looking at these, I was thinking of the, of the portraits of, from the portrait series, more or less so, and then the rogue series kind of coming together as this way of understanding the representation in the rogue work, the way of, uh, the way of you showing the anger and the, the sort of the outrage that you wanted to express mm-hmm. by creating the rogues portraits. Well, one of the things that, the reasons why I never did include people in my work is I've always had a sort of dis, deep distrust of photography's ability to capture any kind of a, a truth or, you know, you know all, all the sort of typical, typical sort of post right. framework the, for photography. Right. I've always sort of has been part of my DNA. I just have never, and the older I've gotten, the more interested I've become in finding something that I believe in, finding something that is more, less cynical. I mean, yet I've never been able to give that up entirely. I mean, it's like it's part <laughs> of my DNA. So, you know, at, at some point, I re- thought it was sort of strange that I collected these images, whether I physically collected them or, you know, collected files, that had this kind of deeply, had a lot of, you know, they're really poignant images, and they really sort of resonated humanity and and. And, you know, because the, I didn't know the author, I didn't know the intent or anything, in some ways that allowed me to kind of engage with them. Right. Because I didn't feel like I was being manipulated. I was in control of their meaning in some ways. And at, so, at some point I realized that some, there was something missing, like in my own work, that, that it, or that, that that was something I should explore. And so the, the first image in the book is a, is a photograph of my brother, who uh, was a very sort of important figure in my life. He has, uh, suffers from schizophrenia and it was sort of, has always, I, I've built many aspects of my work around my relationship to him mm. and his sort of tenuous relationship to reality. And I just sort of decided to go in there and photograph him and see what would happen. 
And I did that in a way that, you know, I'm, I'm using 19th century studio photography techniques, a lot of post- Oh, the backdrops. Yeah, a lot uh, of post-production right, right. is involved, right. a lot of, you know, the sort of collapsing of painting and photography. There's still a lot of distance involved in them uh, and a lot of distancing mechanisms involved in it, but it, it allowed me still to, to get to something right. human, for lack of a better way to put it. And that was, you know, that one of the reasons why I was so interested in working with Mark is I think that that's, I've, I've had many conversations with Mark, and he's often been a reminder to me of whether he knows it or not, <laughs> of the kind of humanity in photography, for lack of a better Right. And, and also, Mark, you were, you were interested in that, that connection to uh, portraiture and painting in the work as well. Oh, absolutely. I mean, one of the things that um, really struck me, especially when I saw the rogues' work, was just how to picture rage, right? Many of us felt enraged by what had occurred. And, you know, many people felt a sense of paralysis and depression. And Oliver decided to basically embody this sort of this anger and um, and to put it to use. I mean, not only to for have it to be a kind of cathartic experience for those who saw it online, but also to help raise money for Planned Parenthood and the ACLU. So it's, it occurred to me at that moment that, and maybe it's just my <laughs> lack of a sort of subtle emotional you know, landscape, but really since the election, I, the, the, the sort of two things that dominating emotions for me have been rage and tenderness. <laughs> mm. uh, anger, a lot of anger, uh, constant anger, and incredibly focused tenderness towards my friends, towards my students, uh, towards people that I love. And I felt suddenly that this range of photographs in Oliver's work, the vernacular, the portraits of his friends and family, and these um, ro- this rogues gallery of the Trump administration, you know, encompassed this sense. And and this is something that we've often talked about as well, is that one of the things that we love about photography is that it's it's democratic, you know, tendencies, or it's that is a relatively democratic medium, right? In other words, many of us have taken photographs, uh, many of us many of us have been photographed. Uh, we look at photographs uh, to even to quote a 40-year-old, you know, uh, essay by Susan Sontag. You know, photographs are the most are as common as furniture, you know, <laughs> in our everyday environment. And uh, you know, I'm interested in that sort of a broad embrace of photography, right? That it all matters, right? The fine art stuff and the vernacular stuff, the commercial stuff, the fashion, the documentary. And Oliver, as far as I could tell, had similar sensibilities, and it, that manifested in his his work. And um, I thought this is a, a moment that where these things make so these pictures make so much sense to me. And that's when we started a conversation about it. Right. You know, I also you you mentioned. Did you mention Orientalism before? Well, yeah, I was talking about the sexualization, which was they, they used they would call it, or, it Orientalism, right? Oh. The, the, that when, the way photo, women were photographed from the the Far East and all in these very sexual poses, right? Yeah, just uh, that struck me because that is there's a section in the book that deals with. I should mention, by the way, that there are two written. Uh, there's a short story written by Rabbi Alamedine, uh, and Rabbi is. Uh, Photograph is in the book also, and I've shot him sort of, he's from uh, Lebanon, and I've shot him in a very overtly sort of traditional, like a Jerome painting or something, mm-hmm. orientalist sort of way. And, and I am interested in the sort of 
I don't know if it's kitsch or just the taboo of the wretched excess of the painted photograph and the exoticizing of... Right. of the wretched excess of a painted photograph. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I think we're done here. <laughs> like that. I know. Right. I, I, know. I, mean, I, think, I think there's something really <laughs> indulgent about painted photographs that is uh, the paint is meant to subjectivize. And often it's done with this kind of blush on the cheeks, exaggerated. If you look at the, actually the, the, in the Second World War, a lot of uh, the Nazis had cigarette cards, these trading cards. Right. And very often, like, so you could get a picture of, like, Goebbels with, you know, like, blush on his face and stuff <laughs> in your cigarette pack. Um, and they look very much like social realist Chinese and Soviet social realist paintings or American propaganda posters. They're heroicized. They're not just heroicized, but also there's a strange, mm. but also, like, there's a weird over... The, the painting of the photograph or the making of paintings that look very that look somewhat photographic that sort of occupy that strange space between painting and photography that really interests me and seems somehow connected to or, or a easy conduit to exoticizing mm. kind of decadence that I, that appeals to me and also kind of repulses me and which can be seen in the work the way you manipulate the images right <laughs> and, and it can be seen in the people too yes I mean if right. you I mean one of the things about the rogues is that it, it, in some ways, they go against everything. I mean, they're really just... I mean, if you look at memes, if you if you have the misfortune of going on Facebook in 2016 onto some conservative person's website, you would see memes of Hillary Clinton with blood coming out of her mouth. And, you know, I mean, it's I'm trafficking in a kind of a, a world of, you know, these viral memes that actually is kind of horrible. And yet... Uh, you know, that, that like both sides thing isn't working for me right now. Mm-hmm. I mean, and these are really horrible people that look horrible. Like you don't have to do much to them. I really am not tweaking them very much. So this idea with photography, again, getting back to my idea, sort of distrust of photography, is that in fact, sometimes you can tell a book by its cover. And sometimes <laughs> like, yes, I know photographs are manipulative and yada, yada. But, you know, I defy you to make a photograph of... Jeff Sessions, where he doesn't look like, you know, a, a little Nazi gnome. <laughs> I'm sorry. I mean, maybe it can be done, but I've never seen it. And, you know, there's a kind of plasticity and, and, and just awfulness to these people that lends itself, I think, to a kind of art that I'm interested in. Mm-hmm. The art of, you know, that, that borderline kitsch and spectacle. Right. And decadence that, I, that I'm always yeah. I, I was I called it a pictorial garishness. You were applying yeah. to these white nationalists, right? <laughs> um, you know, speaking of uh, Rabbi Alamadine's Al- Al- uh, essay, um, that's a very it's a very personal story that he's telling, right? A complete lie, which is also right. Yes, and I mean it is personal, yes, yes, but right. it's not. But yeah. It sounds like it's very diaristic sounding, right. and it's it's, yeah. it's about uh, disappointing your father and not being able to to live up to being a man in some ways, right? Mm-hmm. And and having this sort of much more gorgeous manly brother that everyone mm-hmm. prefers and all, and and it, it it made me start thinking about how personal is this because on the on the face of it. You know, it seems like this collection of work that you have very little, perhaps very little attachment to. But you, you told the story of your brother. That story of, of your brother and the kind of emotional rage that went into showing this work is the part of it that makes it personal, right? Well, they're, yeah, they're, they're photographs of family and friends. I mean, I guess in some ways, mostly because those are the people that are available to me. Right. I don't like photographing people. I'm not very good at it. Like the actual photographing, like mm-hmm. I just basically just say stand there. And then one of the nice things about digital is you can take <laughs> a lot of pictures and then find one 
that mm -hmm. works. I but mean, for me, really, there's no distinction in the book, right? You know what, you know what I'm saying? Like, there's, no, there's no stories, descriptions of what makes this family, what makes this not family. No, right? I mean, there is for me, of course. But yeah, no, I think, you know, there's on a really, again, on a sort of, I don't know if superficial is the right word, but on a very simple level, you know, I am trying to show people that aren't often seen, show them in ways they aren't often seen. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm thinking more of the, the, the flow of the book, the narrative of the book. It doesn't necessarily uh, read as a... So it's, I think, um, uh, Jeffrey Saltz called it a yearbook. Am I right about that? I think he used that word, He yeah. used word yearbook, mm -hmm. as opposed to family album, right? Mm -hmm. And so, so it has more of a distance to it in that sense. Well, when you look at yearbooks, it's interesting. I hadn't really thought about it. Mm -hmm. I forgot he had said that. But when you look at yearbooks, it's funny, especially when you have the benefit of, of time and hindsight. When you look at yearbooks, they are like, they're funny often. <laughs> they speak of a particular moment in time and they speak of types. Like when you look at Archetypes, a yearbook, right. yeah, when you look at a yearbook, oh, there's the jock, there's the right. freak, there's the, you know, the criminal. The most likely You know, to, there's, right. there's the nerd. Um, <laughs> yeah, and we, you know, we kind of break life, you know, portraits do that in some ways, you know, they, no matter how hard you try, people are types. And then the, the, the closing essay by Matthew Weinstein called Psychic Frenemies, mm -hmm. right? It's more of a, a description of you, in a sense. It's a more description of your philosophy and your ideas about the, your love-hate relationship. He calls you a recovered art dealer, I think. In there. <laughs> I'm still still recovering. <laughs> Perpetual recovery, yeah. Yeah, that was, you know, I didn't know that's what Matthew was going to do. I asked him actually to write something because I like his writing, and he decided to write about me or, or the bodies of work, and I, I liked it. Uh, and, and he mentions your, your uh, interest in manipulating work is pre-digital. It is. Right? Yeah. The, I think the first series on your side is UFOs. In the early right? 80s, I, yeah. I did some, a lot of photographs of just floating objects. And mm -hmm. things. Yeah, I mean, I really didn't. I, for 10 years, I was working without a computer. And in some ways, Photoshop complicated and undercut a lot of my the sort of critical foundations of my work. And what do you mean by that? Insofar as I could talk about my early work as being about, you know, typical f issues that have always, photography has always been involved with about, you know, reality and questioning whether something is real or not and you know sort of playing off of the audience's expectations of what a photograph is when digital technology came along that suddenly no longer really became an interesting question anymore because we just assume that a photograph is a plastic thing that is you know has, has much less of a foot mm -hmm. in, in reality so I, in some ways it just forced me to cop to some of my more baroque mm passions <laughs> right. without the uh, maybe the critical uh, foundation to stand on yeah and then mark when i was um reading up on you as well and that's where i found that that funny intersection of your interest in the the sci-fi and the, the ufo world um yeah so i've been interested in what i call a atos you know all things outer space and i think part of it is generational perhaps i mean there was an interest in the 60s and 70s a kind of rekindled interest or of a in the paranormal and the UFOs and that kind of thing. It was a reveal of the X Files, right? The uh, pre X Files. Uh, <laughs> oh, um, yeah, but they were actually yes. blue. Uh, they were called documents of something oh, blue, blue, blue something. Blue oh, papers. Or something yeah, like yeah, that. yeah, yeah. From the yeah. absolutely. So I read all of that stuff when I was a kid, and it was quite you know. And, but anyway, that's again, that's what, what I love that aspect of photography. These sort of marginal histories or these sort of marginal archives and. Um, I was teaching at Syracuse, and I shared an office with Jane Marshing, and we discovered our mutual interest in ATOS. So we um, 
when we left Syracuse, I moved to Baltimore and she lived to move to Boston, we um, proposed to do some projects together around spiritualism and photography. Um, so we organized a panel at CIA about 19th century spirit photographs, and then hmm. CIA asked us to guest edit their journal, which we did. And so those were all sort of, again, looking at how technology, new technologies, or what Jeffrey Sconce calls the technologies of disembodiment in the 19th century, how they were used to picture the otherworldly. And then we started thinking about, like, well, what are contemporary artists using? How are they using new technologies to deal with similar issues? So Jane and I organized a show called Blur of the Otherworldly, Contemporary Art, Technology, and hmm. Paranormal. Yeah. So, yeah, I'm Oliver's, I can't remember, Oliver, you weren't in that show, I don't think, but we did use your work in the, when we guest edited the, um, the CAA Journal, I believe. I mean, it's funny, people would often come up to me and ask me, about my interest in UFOs and whether, whether and I, I have no interest in UFOs as a, I don't believe in them. I've never, you know, I have what? no, I have no, I mean, I, I was raised, you know, by a very rational German mathematician and it's just, that too is a huge, is just part of my DNA. I have no interest in, in that, but I am interested in lies and deception and, and, and I'm interested also in, you know, uh, hallucinations and, and sort of, Spiritualism, I guess, is manifest through uh, as a kind of separation from reality. So UFOs do interest me in that regard, as these kind of as visionary things mm-hmm. and as photograph, you know, as a sort of the ultimate, I guess, photographic lie. And I also have a deep interest, and in, I've always had an interest in, I guess, what one could call kitsch. Although I think there's a, it's more complicated than that. But you know, growing up, you know, Mark and I have talked a lot about our mutual interest in album cover arts. I'm a big fan of Roger Dean and kind of bad surrealism, uh, (laughs) which also strangely has been the internet and digital technology has kind of messed that up for me too, because Mm. now there's just like every 13 year old kid in the world has access (laughs) to this like technology where they can make these amazing surreal hallucinogenic landscapes. And then you realize that, well, geez, that's Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> so, I'm just a 13-year-old kid. It doesn't have that kind of imperfect hand kind of quality to it, right? The, the I don't know. I mean, I had yeah. this conversation once with Corey Archangel about, you know, he used to get sort of heralded a lot for doing for having this kind of relationship with the internet and doing these kind of interesting memes and this viral stuff. And then one day he realized that he would come up with these ideas that like, let's have a cat walk across the piano until it's playing you know Mozart mm-hmm. and then I'll edit it and he realized that like all these 14 year old kids in their basements were doing this also it's kind of like <laughs> at what point you know is it is it something that one engages with critically or are you just mm. indulging yourself anyway I, that's a long way of saying <laughs> that I have an interest and I would like to think it is one uh, that I have a critical eye on right. it, but I'm also just 13 year old boy at home <laughs> who likes did that, um, that growing up with a, a father who's a mathematician? Did that? Does that affect the? Did that influence the the way you work, the process that you have? Do you feel like you have this sort of regimented way that you work with the photos, or did you no. reject that completely? <laughs> no, my mother is a social worker, and she was twenty six years younger than him, so I had a real sort of in the end kind of upbringing. But no, I, I think if you know if anything was formed, it was. He was a survivor. I mean, he fled the Nazis, and he was he was born in 1909. He was mm-hmm. quite old. He was 50 when I was born, and he he had very he was just a very deeply cynical guy, cynical, oh, pessimistic. You know, he would sign letters to me all as well, if not too much as expected. 
Oh, wow. <laughs> so, wow. Uh, <laughs> um, so I kind of inherited that. Um, when did your interest in art begin? Where, did you grow up in New York? No, I grew up in Wisconsin. Oh, okay. I moved here in 1979 mm-hmm. when I was 19, and I had no interest in, in art. I had a friend who... I mean, I, I made films and took photographs, and like you know, Super 8 films and stuff. In college? I, or? No, I didn't oh. study art. I went to a media studies program and, uh, at Hunter College here mm-hmm. in New York. No, I, I, I had a friend when I was 19 who worked in a gallery. It was called the Terry Denton Foss Gallery, I think. Do you remember that? On Upper East Side. And he would come home and he would talk all about like these artists. And I remember thinking like how weird it was that they always talked about the artist's names but not the artwork. And I can't even get my brain back to that mm. point of frame. But I had no, like for me when I was growing up, art was album covers, photographs of, you know, you know mountains and things that were, and calendars. Or, you know, I knew the Mona Lisa, I knew Dali, you know, but I, I had no interest in art. What, what I had was, interest in pictures. Where did you think you were going when you were at Hunter? <laughs> <laughs> to... Uh, to the mud club. <laughs> I don't know. No. I, um, was it sort of a media communication? Is that I was it? interested in propaganda. I was mm. obsessed with propaganda. And I, um, that's what I studied. And I could never figure out, like, short of being a propaganda minister, I couldn't really figure out what I was going to do with that <laughs> um, in my life. And I never did. And then in, when I was 23, I opened a, an art gallery because I started hanging out with more people that were making work. And I started looking. And I became more interested in art in my mm-hmm. early 20s. But I was never one of those kids that could draw or anything. So I was yeah. just, you know, it wasn't like, nobody ever said, you should be an artist when I was a kid. <laughs> so then you went on to get your master's. Eventually the I got... The Trans I, Art Institute. I got my Austria. master's as an adult, yeah. <laughs> uh, because unlike the old days, you suddenly needed a master's degree to get teaching jobs. Uh, so I thought I would get a full-time job when I had kids, and then I decided against that at some point. But Nope, I can't get back into your computer. Uh, what happened? We go to sleep. Yeah, I went to sleep. It wouldn't wake up. So, um, Mark, how did you get into? <laughs> how did you get into all of this? When I was uh, 16, 17, I was a high school dropout and um, sort of wandering around the streets of Boston. And uh, this really happened. This uh, media activist who looked just like Cat Stevens <laughs> put uh, a camera in my hand and said. He wanted to work, you know, his organization was called Somerville Media Action Project. And uh, they wanted to work with youth. They wanted to do media skills to youth. That's a thing now, right? And so um, he approached my friends and I, and he said, uh, for friends and me, uh, and said, uh, do you want to work this camera? And I just happened to be going to a Led Zeppelin concert that weekend. And so my first photographic experience when I was 17 was to photograph Led Zeppelin at Boston Garden. And uh, he said, bring this film back and I'll show you how to develop it. And that really was, you know, um, I'm telling it sort of glibly right now, but it really was a pivot in my life. I mean, from being a wayward youth towards something, having a direction. And we were talking about, you and I were talking about education earlier and just how significant that is to kids who don't, don't know that that world exists and to show them that there is a way of sort of expressing themselves or being connected to culture by being producers, not just uh, consumers of it. So, I mean, that just started my lifelong interest in photography. And it's, you know, been rather circuitous, but, you know, but that's sort of how it started. I eventually went to art school and did lots of other stuff. But um, that, to me, that was like the pivotal moment. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Do you still can you consider yourself an active photographer and 
then a, a writer and a, now a book producer and... Um, you know, I'm, I've always been a writer as well, along with... Uh, so even when I was actively exhibiting, I was also writing about art. But you no, know, about 15 or 16 years ago, I decided to stop making work you know, actively and stop exhibiting. Mm-hmm. I just, I guess I just lost interest. I mean, I had actually had this very specific feeling of like, oh, I have no more pictures left in me, but I seem to still have some words left. Right, <laughs> words, and of course... Um, but I still, to my... Promoting I mean, I, other... Yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, I feel like I don't know that I'm, uh, you know, I feel like a charlatan in many ways, <laughs> right? I'm a dilettante. I sort of follow my nose, but I don't have any pedigree uh, training as a writer, but... It's something that I've done a lot and write, love very much. But I feel like an artist in my bones. I feel mm-hmm. like I'm an artist. I'm just having to be working with images and work, writing about images mostly. And, um, you know, and also really interested in community. And so as a teacher and as a writer and now, you know, working with books. Right. And you're at yeah. the... Oh, go ahead. Yeah. Well, I just wanted to say, I, and I don't say this just to um, flatter Mark or something, but but we really, you know, when we made the book, we would talk constantly um, and meet constantly and you know I would bounce page spreads and stuff off him and sort of conceptualize the sequencing of the book and stuff and it was really like it made me realize just the importance of you know when I ran an art gallery the artist that we showed would tell me this like how great it was to work with somebody that was actually an artist and stuff and it actually really makes a difference to work on these things with, you know, I mean, Mark is an artist, and it was like, it was, you know, there was never any question about, you know, this being a pecuniary, you know, this, no one's getting rich here or anything, but, the, and I, so I, I, I don't think anybody would, would approach it like, you know, we have to figure out a way to make money marketing off of Marketing strategy. Marketing strategies, right. yeah. Mark, I don't know if we really got to the way you saw the, the portraits and the rogues and the connection you know, I, I mentioned I sort of the portraits are kind of this baseline place to sort of understand the rogues' work. When you saw the two together, what did you uh, like? What was the the idea of how it should be paired and how the pages should flow? Um, I didn't have an idea about how the pages should flow at that point. I mean, I think I described earlier that I just recognized something in the way that Oliver was embracing photography as a making images of his friends and family, right. making these uh, pictures of the Trump administration as an expression of political rage. rage. And then the sort of, you know, the vernacular love of photography, love of vernacular photography in, in its sort of democratic, you know, sort of spectrum. And within those three forms that there was this kind of, I thought was a, the perfect kind of manifestation of the historic political and, uh, I guess, aesthetic moment that we were in. So, as I said earlier, you know, rage and tenderness. Yeah. <laughs> I wanted to get back for a second to something yeah. you asked about uh, quite a while ago uh, in this conversation about my family and about how much it meant to me that they were my you know, family. And I, and I, and right. I probably, you know, it probably is more than they're, they're just there to be photographed. But one of the things that ties together all of these photographs, the rogues, the, the vernacular stuff, the, the, my portraits, is that in all of them, they're not traditional vernacular photographs and they're snapshots. These are all staged photographs. Most of the vernacular pictures, which what I'm calling vernacular pictures in this book, are actually photo booth pictures where there is no author, right? right. It's a machine taking right. the, the pictures of them. And in some ways, you know, that, that, and of course the photographs of the politicians, of the rogues, are 
AP for, for photographs or, you know, these are all anonymous as well. And, and in some ways, the photographs I'm taking of my family and friends, you know, I, they're, they're, they're shot in front of a green screen. They just go in there, they present themselves, the cameras in some ways, you know, it's, it's set in one place. They're studio shots. Right. And so I think in that sense, while they are, the vernacular is involved here, it's, a, it's, it's really more about a kind of um, studio setup photograph. Yeah. Why don't we take a couple questions from the uh, <laughs> audience here, and I'll, I'll bring the mic out, and then if you have a question, you can ask. So could you talk a little bit about the, about your the transition of the work from, like, from the internet and social media, and, and it's a, you know, kind of ephemeral voice there, and then from that to making prints, and then, and then a book? Yeah, that's actually a great question, because the, you know, most of these are meant to be seen and were seen in, in the virtual realm in, in, without prints involved. Uh, they were seen... You know, they were really activated images that were catalysts for conversation and didn't have any physical physical presence, which, you know, pulling them out of the stream of images on the Internet, just kind of repositioning them, and then other, you know, somebody would click and hit share, and it would, you know, there are pictures in motion. And that is a really different thing. Um, and like I said, the rogues themselves were also meant to be seen more as like, almost a cathartic thing, like let's put it out there and bond over this because like, this is crazy, right? We're all seeing this, And this you, is crazy. you immediately put those up for sale for raising the money for Planned Parenthood. Well, at first right? they were really, they were done like in, you know, literally in December of 2016, they were done, right, you know, a few of them were done just immediately as a way of just, I don't know, I mean, it, it was just a baseline kind of, Thing, where it was just I wanted to put it out there and so we could all kind of bond over the insanity of it. Um, yeah, and then it became something that I wanted to give some purpose to. But yeah, so I, I you know, in general, always, like I've done, a, I did another book where of um, called Artist Unknown that is a collection of images I collected on the internet that were uh, hundreds of pictures that were curated again. Uh, and I, that for me was just taking them off the internet was kind of strange and putting them into a book. It really became a very different thing. Well, you know, that's the, I'm, I'm sort of, the whole appropriation, for lack of a better word, issue is one that has a very interesting relationship to these kind of photographs because they aren't, in fact, um, they're orphaned photographs. And while you can, I can't break into your house and steal one if you own the print, you don't own the rights to that image. So if you... Post, if you have a huge, like Peter Cohen, who people in this program certainly know, is a wonderful man who has a huge vernacular photo collection. And he's very generous with his photos. A lot of the pictures from my book are, are, are from his collection. And I've been collecting my own. But a lot of them are also just from people who post these images on the internet. And there's huge, there's a lot of websites that are just devoted to, and a lot of the people get very possessive. And they get very, like, I get nasty letters from people all the time threatening to sue me and stuff. And it's like, I mean, aside from the fact that they don't have a legal leg to stand on, I, just from an ethical standpoint, I don't understand it. They didn't take the photograph. They bought it. And I understand them wanting to be recognized for it. And if I can, I will say, you know, this is so-and-so owns this. But it's really not, you know, it, there is, it's, it's purely about ego. There is nothing else involved in that ownership issue. 
uh, and legally there's there's no no nothing. Yeah. Can I just address your question um, quick? Uh, just that for me, um, it's the intimacy of the book, right? I mean, I, I know that. Um, um, Oliver prefers. I mean, he's. Not, I don't think he's actually a fan of exhibiting his work to some extent. Is that true? Do you still have a gallery? I, I um, <laughs> Are you saying no to future curators? I, 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 I don't like. No, I, I find that work in a gallery is always disappointing to me. <laughs> I don't feel the same way, but I do feel that. Um, what? I, but I. What I. I really wanted the um, sort of immediacy of an object, right? That also. That I mean, it's I not that books, it's, it's not that it's free, <laughs> here, here. you know, but it is accessible, right? I mean, once somebody asked me if I could uh, have one, you know, uh, print of uh, from Robert Frank's *The Americans* um, on my wall, and not have the book or the book, I said I'd have the book. I mean, I would rather have the book, you know, than have this precious thing on my wall. I love pictures and love to have them on my walls, but I prefer the relationship between the images. And um, to me, that brings them alive and that people can have a one-to-one relationship with them is really important. And to, yeah, so finding a way of distributing these ideas. And the way, also on the internet, you know, as as many followers as Oliver has, you know, it's dispersed, you know, and so bringing them together into a kind of coherent object was a worthwhile project, I thought. Yeah, yeah, come on up. The first thing I'll say about the white cube, I have another thing I want to ask. But um, the we all have of us teach here. Most of us, it seems like. The surprise for me, in addition to growing up with these kind of appropriation, you know, postmodern thing, is that millennials, if I may say that, love the White Cube, a lot of them, you know, you'll say, oh, because we grew up with uh, Inside the White Cube, it's where art goes to die, and then now... I have all these younger people that, you know, I work with, and they don't think that way at all. They think it's like a really cool construct. They're totally, it's the same as the internet, which leads me to my question. Um, Sitting here looking at these, I'm just curious what your approach is to manipulation, because, of course, the analog, the digital, the truth in photography, but then the fact that we all know that photographs have been manipulated since the moment they existed. But it is, you know, in the sense when I'm sitting here looking and seeing the whole thing go by, um, I sense the manipulation, but I don't know what it is. And also I'm sort of interested around because manipulation in the post-post-digital age Mm -hmm. also has a kind of ethics around it. So it's almost like people say, well, here's what I will do and here's what I won't do. So I'm just curious. Well, those two things are related because um, I notice with my students as well that the all my expectations about what millennials um, <laughs> would be interested in, what I predicted they would be interested in, what I, of course, assumed they would be interested in, was virtuality and and you know uh, non-physical spaces that the art object would dematerialize completely and stuff. But on the contrary, and and I, I have cynical uh, explanations for this, which probably don't apply. But on the contrary, I've noticed that they fetishize the object now, that they are making original objects, that they want nothing to do with they. I'm making gross generalizations mm-hmm. here. But that, that a lot of my students want to shoot film. They want to be in the darkroom. They want to make unique objects out of their photographs. They want to deal with abstraction in their photographs. So here's the cynical explanation. They're paying X amount of dollars for 
a degree, everyone's got really high quality cameras in their pockets that take really good pictures. I mean, everybody, what distinguishes them, what makes them different than, than anybody who can take a good photograph? That's a cynical view. I think there are also many other, I think there is a longing for the material, for the physical, for the original uh, in this highly distanced and mediated world. And I think maybe the, the gallery interest is also a response in some ways to that, to the physical, social, you know, being there thing, something which I don't feel at all. For me, I'm, I love the way my pictures look on the screen. I would rather talk to people about my art online. I would, you know, I would, uh, for me, the social space of the computer is, is a much more comfortable place. In terms of the manipulation of the images, um, again, I, I've always been more interested in post-production and manipulation, but for me, seamlessness has always been imperative. That, you know, that, that illusion, the, the sort of seamlessness of how it's done has always been important to me, you know, even though it's all collage and everything's collage, it's not scissors and glue collage, although a lot of what you see now with younger photographers, I think, is or is meant to look that way. And yet, with a, one of the things about a lot of the um, studio photographs that I'm playing off of, these 19th century studio photographs, is that while they would photograph people in front of a backdrop, there was always that line right at the floor where the backdrop meets the which I just find so endearing. It just, it kind of just, it, I, I just find it beautiful. Um, yes, it's about, we don't even try to hide that in some ways. So, I, you know, yeah, I mean, I think that's a really, manipulation is just such an interesting, ever-shifting space. One of the great books that Mark uh, did with St. Lucy was with uh, Laura Larson, the photographer Laura Larson. It's a book called Hidden Mother, and there are photographs of, from the 19th century that she weaves into a narrative of her own life and child that she adopted, but there are these great photographs of babies that were taken in the studio in the 19th century where the mother, because the exposure was so long, the mother had to hold the baby, but they didn't want the mother in the photograph, so they would put a blanket over her, mm. uh, hence the hidden mother, and it's super creepy and weird and speaks to the fact that they didn't think it was super creepy and weird. I mean, that sort of speaks to this different relationship we have to photographs, but that's an example, I think, of where a kind of manipulation or something tells you a lot about, I don't know, the zeitgeist of the time. It's, you know, special effects, I guess. Yeah, but when you, when you did transition from the darkroom to Photoshop, did any of your philosophy on the ideas change as well, on what manipulation should look like and what it should represent? No, I think I became more interested in a, that sort of uncanny valley space, that space that is less where you really can't tell if something is real or not. And that, I think, is a space that's becoming really interesting now with these, like, if you, I don't know if you've seen, like, Instagram celebrities that aren't real people, right? I mean, that's just crazy. <laughs> you know, and so that, that space uh, that Craig Kalpachian and other artists have sort of explored of, you know, that isn't really lens-based anymore, but it's still a photograph, mm -hmm. you know, that... I've become, you know, the digital technology, I think, has got me more interested in that, really that, that space right between painting and photography, mm. some new. Yeah. I think we could. Um... Oh, yeah. Sorry. Go ahead. And I, I just found the backdrops, you know, wonderful things in themselves. Um... Thanks. Well, that's, as I mentioned before, you know, for 30 plus years, I never, I, I was basically gross simplification, but a landscape photographer. I was, you know, for me, photographs were windows in, into spaces. And, and, um, and a lot of my interest was in 
romantic landscape painting, Hudson River painting, and the kind of its relationship to cinema and blah, 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 and in romanticism and the sublime, of course. And the backdrops, you know, I'm shooting people against a green screen and I'm compositing paintings. Some of them are from video games, like the one of my son up there is from his favorite video game. But most of them are images that are made by compositing found paintings, some known, some just shitty paintings I found. You know, they're not on, real backdrops. They are not real backdrops. Oliver, you have to mention Putin's eyes. That's right. Oh, I, yes. I, all of the... In the book, right. All, all of the Trumps and a few of the other rogues, they all have Putin... I've taken Putin's eyes out and given them Putin's eyes because they don't... A lot of the people do have blue eyes. So does Miller have Putin's eyes? Yeah. yeah. Pence does not. Pence is the weirdest one of them all. Because <laughs> he just looks like he's had plastic... I mean, I don't know if he has had plastic surgery, but it's just... And did you notice Pence's, the guy who was going to be chief of staff, what was his name? Oh, right. He just dropped out. He, he dropped yeah, out. But, but I mean, he's like one Ayers, of them, too. Ayers, I think. Yeah, Ayers, they yeah. all just look like... I think it's years of repression. <laughs> I don't know what it is. I don't know what it is. Yeah, maybe. Anyway. Yeah. Yeah, please. please. Please, Liz. Hi. Well, I'm like such a huge fan of your Instagram, which we've been like talking Thank about you. a little bit. But I think like one of the things that's... I love about it is you do post consistently. So it's very clear you have like a huge archive. Yeah. So I'm curious to talk a little bit about that process of like remaining consistent about posting. But what I really want to know is when you're collecting your images on the internet, like what words you're using to search for them. Well, I'm not using words to search for them. I'm going to places where I find an aggregate you know, of them. And one of the interesting things I mentioned Peter Cohen before, who has this huge vernacular photo collection. And when you go to his studio, to his apartment or loft or whatever it is, where he's got literally, as you've been there, probably hundreds of uh, shoeboxes full or boxes filled with the photos that he collects. And he's given them categories. And I asked him how he came up with these categories. And it was the same way I did. It was just like suddenly one day you notice you've got, hey, I've got 300 photographs of people women with guns, you know, and it's not that, you know, each one of those could be in a different category, but, but you're interested in photographs of women with guns or, you know, some of the, you know, birthday parties and Christmas trees and stuff like that are more natural um, uh, typologies. But, but basically, I just, you know, I, there are many places, and Pinterest has changed everything now, but there are just many places out there on the internet where people who are interested in the kind of closed set of the of, of the analog world in some ways. I mean, I only post analog images for the most part, and that because that's a closed set now, the kind of the interesting stuff is getting uh, surfacing and being distributed. And it's, you know, I think that that I collect a lot of images that other people collect. And yeah, so it's uh, I don't know if I'm answering your question except to say that I don't use keyword searches, but uh, I do make categories. So, you know, they'll be like uh, twins or, you know, uh, signs, strange kids and things like that. And uh, there's just a lot of crazy stuff. I mean, it's a huge archive, the Internet. My first exposure to doing something narrative, let's call it, or constructed out of vernacular pictures was Michael Lessie's Wisconsin Death Trip. Sure. And I find it surprising nobody references it anymore. 
It's funny. I, I being from funny. Wisconsin, it's huh? certainly he's from Wisconsin. I'm from Wisconsin. I know it's that. certainly yeah. something that I've thought about a lot. Yeah. yeah, I mean, I think that, and you know, the more reference evidence, Mandel and Larry Sultan's book. Yeah, in some ways, they're kind of the the seminal works. Yeah, but Wisconsin Death Trip, in some ways, even more in that it. Um, you know, made connections between you know the written word and 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 it was literally it was drawn from an archive that was a more public archive and made up fictional stories. Yeah, no, it's it's funny. I'm not sure why that's not. Uh, yeah, I think I think some things get connected to points in time and they get like Kurt Vonnegut in some ways, as good as he was, will always be tied to the 70s or, or the 60s and Richard Richard Broudigan and. Uh, Jonathan Livingston Siegel maybe is understandably in the dustbin, but um, sorry, <laughs> sorry. <laughs> I'm just making faces back here. Jonathan don't don't, don't knock Jonathan Livingston. <laughs> I won't, <laughs> out of respect. Like Wisconsin Death Trip was such a novelty when it first came out, and now you know we can go we can go anywhere now. I mean, you know, even if you just go to like institutional archives, like NYPL or National Archives or Library of Congress. I mean, it's all right there, and it's at your fingertips. Yeah, so no, I think I, I think the you know the novelty of uh, you know finding these vernacular pictures is it's gone now because because it's just everything's out there now. But I mean, the sort of seminal part of it, I think, again, was the curatorial part of it. I mean, the kind of you know the the, the taking an archive and re. Right, shaping it into right, something that's kind of to, gone a, away to a meta narrative, right. right? That's kind of gone away at this point. You kind yeah. of just like fall into things now instead of having a, a gatekeeper or a curator go through and show you things. And now yeah. it's now you get to discover things on your own, kind of. Like uh, and again, every thirteen-year-old with a Tumblr account is 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 creating a Wisconsin death trip of their own. Exactly. Right? Exactly. So, um, uh, it's a maybe it's a silly question. Do you want the audience to uh, identify the? Which one? Whose enemy? Who's our friends? Who's yeah. Stranger. Because for me, I can only sense like. You can't tell. I can only tell. <laughs> yeah. No, I can't. I can only tell those icons, those the Trump yeah. families, the Pence, and um. Yeah. That, that's not a stupid question at all. In fact, that's a really great question because to me it speaks to what happens to this book in fifty years. What happens to this book when it's seen by someone in, I don't know, you know, in, in Azerbaijan who isn't as familiar with these people? You know, I mean, to me, it's that's when it becomes, in some ways, more interesting because then it is about surface, and like, who's the friend? Who's the enemy? Who's the stranger? Uh, when you really don't know them anymore, and you no longer have the point in time, uh, it becomes more. The faces become more what indicates it. I mean, I think that's interesting to me that, that uh, uh, I don't know what's going to happen. I mean, I listen to protest songs sometimes from the 60s or even songs, you know, that meant there's a... The other day I heard uh, a song that mentioned Eleanor Bumpers. So a few, I got a few smiles from people out here, but Eleanor Bumpers was a woman who was killed by the police in New York in the 80s. It was, you know, just this political lightning rod and now is sort of forgotten and will die when, with us, our memories, when we go. And so it's interesting what happens to enemies over time. I'll go ahead. Yeah, I just would like to address that a little bit. Um, so I have said numerous times that I feel like Oliver's book is a, a book of the moment. But I, what he says about it being seen by future audiences or by audiences that aren't familiar with the American political landscape 
is an interesting one and something that we did think about um, because it seems to me that you know this distrust of thinking that photography can reveal something about the interior life of a person when all photography can do is deal with exterior is you know something that's one of the paradoxes of photography right particularly portrait photography yet some photographs do reach us or move us for some sometimes personal reasons or inexplicable reasons and i think roland barth deals with that you know, in, in depth in Camera Lucida. But there's also something about the kind of, the spectrum is, uh, it's fluid, right? There's friends, enemies, and strangers, because I have people in my life who are sometimes all of the above in the same moment. <laughs> I love you, I don't know who you are, and why are you thwarting me? <laughs> you know? So I do think that you know, that this idea that uh, a person could be a friend, could be an enemy, could be a stranger, and that, you know, we don't always know. And that we bring our own, we project, obviously, our own desires onto other people. Particularly, I mean, always, of course, but in photographs we can do that, you know, almost without, without their responding, right? Because they're inanimate objects at this point. So I do think that there's a way that these photographs can activate our imaginations both on a personal and emotional and psychological level, as well as a political level. And I think it, depending on how close or distant you are from this particular, you know, political moment that this, board, that, uh, that this book comes from, in some ways will affect how you read it. Um, but we're interested in that kind of flexibility, as we are in that kind of flexibility of photographs in general, that they are, photographs finally are inscrutable objects, that they're, you know, they are paradoxical in that they are, very obvious, you know, they're pointing to something like this person, right? But then they are also kind of inscrutable, something, something we can't, or enigmatic, we can't quite understand what they are. They're pointing at something, but we're not quite sure what they're pointing at, right? So there's always that sort of, and I guess that's that uncanny thing that, that Oliver was talking about, you know, it's familiar and strange simultaneously. And in uh, six years, when Donald Trump finally wins that Nobel Peace Prize, these will be his heroic uh, portraits. Yeah. We'll see them as heroic. Well, it, it is funny to, to, you know, there's 17 of the rogues that have been made so far, and I've, I've drawn X's through, I think, eight of them at this point. And I, and, uh, I guess, uh, what's his name? Um, Chief of Staff. John Kelly. Most, John Kelly is the most recent, uh, most recent to go, yeah. <laughs> So one of the things we haven't touched upon is this notion of bookmaking. And I, I you know, Mark, I just wanted to ask you a little bit in the way that you see the sort of the book publishing industry now and the, and the way you approached it. Um, was that a sort of reaction to the way the, the industry was sort of handling artists and photographers? No, it's not a reaction. I mean, again, as a, uh, somebody who learned about photography, studied photography in the 70s and 80s, books were really the primary way that we discovered photographs, right? Um, and, um, and so books were really, in some ways, not only the, the conveyor, but also the form of how photographs work together, right? So in that sense, there's um, just a, a great love of the tradition and the importance of books to photographic history. Mm -hmm. So there's that, right? And then, you know, with, I guess, in the last 10 or 15 years, there's been an explosion of small publishers, self-publishing and that kind of thing, which is quite wonderful. Um, you know, and it reminds me to some extent of the sort of DIY sort of punk movement in the sense that people just, uh, we're not going to wait for the gatekeepers, we're just going to do it ourselves. 
And so I've been a fan, you know, and I go to all the art book fairs for years and, um, and have gotten to know many of the people who are publishing small books or small publishers or people I've known, you know, through, you know, photography or various things. And, um, and so I've just been interested in the phenomenon. And as I said, I started St. Lucie, you know, the website, the online journal in 2011. And so in 2016, I was shopping a book around, my book, 27 Contexts, an anecdotal history and photography. And around the same time, I heard of Laura Larson's book, um, Hidden Mother. And I contacted her and I said, so who's publishing your book? And she said, um, no one. <laughs> And I said, why not? She says, well, because people say they don't know what it is. It's, it's, not, uh, it's not a memoir. It's not a, a monograph. It's not criticism. It's not theory. It's, not, it's none of these things, and it's all of those things. Um, and I said, it's so funny because that's exactly what people are saying about my book. Hmm. They're really interested. They, they like it. They're supportive of me, but they're not sure what to do with it because it's in between all of these things, right? And I really, just at that moment, talking to Laura, I thought, oh, <laughs> Again, it's one of those pivot moments, and I just thought, oh, maybe it's time for St. Lucie to do that. Mm. So where I had felt frustrated by the lack of uh, you know, commitment from publishers, um, I suddenly felt liberated. I saw the, you know, just I saw the, the, the landscape open up, and I, I contacted Laura, and I said, um, I'm thinking of starting to publish books with St. Lucie. Are you interested? And she said, yes. And, uh, and that's how it started. So it's only been four books. Um, wow. But it's, a really, it's been a learning curve and a, great, and a pretty challenging learning curve, but it's really extraordinary because it's, a, it's a, again, a community of people, small book publishers who uh, are very generally very supportive of one another. There are many, many challenges, of course, but I've, right. uh, it's a, a way of engaging you know, images, texts, mm-hmm. objects, and community. Um, and teaching to some extent um, in a way that I always have. And so in some ways it all kind of coheres in this project. One of the few areas where the kind of utopian promise of, of the internet and digital technology has actually manifest is in self-publishing of all kinds, whether it's, I mean, and this isn't really self-publishing is because, you know, you, you, I associate myself with St. Lucie Books and doing this book, and I like that connection very much. And I, you know, I'm, I, you know, I'm in a group of uh, of like-minded you know people that I respect who also done books, and I get to work with Mark and everything. But it does circumvent, you know, the gatekeepers. It circumvents the market in some ways. In some ways, and I think that happens. That's happening across the board now in in in, in the arts in ways that is really exciting and I just don't see a downside to it anywhere. Yeah, I think um, that, that. And I should also say this book was, you know, it was uh, funded by, through Kickstarter originally. That's right. You know, so, <laughs> so you know, Mark has a great designers he works with. He has, you know, um, good printing people and stuff and, and the ability to contextualize and, and, and promote the book. But the actual, you know, you pre-selling books using digital technologies and the internet. Yeah, I think the, sort of the ultimate subversion of the you know the the larger book publishers started with self-publishing and the online publishing but then I think people discovered that there was there was no distribution there was it was too insular uh, it was too difficult and so the I think what came out of that then were smaller more independent publishers which kind of is that sweet spot between the do-it-yourself and um, you know also having some sort of structure and, and distribution right 
I mean, it's not to say that you know people like Aperture aren't doing great things. I oh, mean, absolutely. Are, yeah. You know, um, and MacBooks, which is now in some ways rivals Aperture, um, started as a kind of alternative, you know, and now it's become its own empire. Right. Um, <laughs> but again, it's not in. It wasn't in. I mean, I don't do what I do in opposition to anything. It's just out of a, a need to do something and maybe you know just say trying to find the um, the kind of the open path. You yeah. Know? And it's to do it yourself to some extent. Yeah, yeah. I think uh, I think we've gotten to it all. <laughs> what do you think? I'm good. Did I miss anything? No. No. Thank you. Thank you, Oliver and Mark. So thank you. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Jay. Bye, everyone. <laughs> <laughs>